Back in 2020, as part of an effort by the state to expedite the lengthy permitting process for large-scale renewable energy projects across New York, then-Governor Andrew Cuomo pushed through legislation creating the Office of Renewable Energy Siting, which was empowered to help shepherd along projects that would be critical to hitting the state's green energy goals. With Governor Kathy Hochul hoping to move the approval of energy storage and transmission lines under the purview of the office as well, we wanted to look back at the track record of this powerful state entity and look ahead to its potentially growing mandate. To do that, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by Brenda Colella, co-chair of the regulatory practice area at the law firm of Barclay Damon. Brenda, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. And we're also joined in the studio by the other co-chair of the firm's regulatory practice area, Akin Senlet. Welcome, Akin. Thank you so much, David. So if we rewind back to 2020, when Andrew Cuomo got the ball rolling on what would become uh, the State Office of Renewable Energy Siting, was there a need to revamp the siting process for large-scale renewable energy projects, or was this uh, legislative action in search of a problem? You ask whether it was a necessary need and why we have this new, very powerful office. The answer is yes. Back in 2020, actually before that, in 2019, the Climate Act passed. The idea was to increase the state electricity uh, coming from renewable energy sources by 2030. Here we are, 2024. We only have six years left, and we are trying to get to 70% of our electricity from renewable resources. What was happening back then is... um, We had a different statute out in the books called Article 10, and Article 10 was not streamlined for the renewable projects. It was mostly created for the uh, siding or the fossil foil projects. Was this the case where we were talking about years for projects to be realized, or were there other problems with it that needed to be addressed? It was... In the regulations, yes, the progress was very slow, and there were a couple of reasons for that. First, the siding board back then, it's Article 10, Mm -hmm. was prosecuted, was under the uh, siding board. Under Article 10, when an application is put forward, there wasn't a set of standard, uh, you know, the uh, rules and regulations for each and every project. What that means is when a project comes along, The same issue can be litigated for each project that's coming through the uh, siding board. And the litigation process, as you can imagine, can be very time-consuming, as well as um, it's it's a venue for them to stall the projects. So that was the biggest issue in terms of everything going to litigation or a hearing phase. Under ORES, what was promulgated is that a set of standards that is all for the solar projects as well as the wind projects. So the projects, the developers, when they come before the state, they know what they have to put in their application, and they know that they don't have to litigate every single issue. As an example, what will pass the noise limits in a town? The projects know when they come in there that they have to adhere to specific limits before they go to the ORES, and they know that they don't have to litigate every single issue. So that's the biggest difference. The other aspect of it is ORS has a strict timeline of issuing a permit once the application before ORS is found complete. And that timeline is 12 months if it's a new site, it's six months if it's a reused, refurbished brownfield site. 
You said Ores is, is very powerful. Was the sighting board that was uh, predating this, was that just not powerful or was it not utilizing the power at its disposal? Sighting board had everything under them. That's the issue sighting board had all the gas-fired electricity generating projects, as well as wind, as well as solar. However, ORES is extremely specialized for only for the renewable projects that are going before them. And there's also criteria what ORES can see, anything over 25 megawatts. So that is how uh, it's you know structured in the statute. I think the first major renewable uh, project, Pasadena Wind, to get a certificate under Article 10, it took four years. Wow. to get that certificate from the very beginning of the process. Um, towards the end, before projects transferred over to ORES, they were getting them to move through the process a bit faster, more like two years versus four years. So quite a timely process. Now that we're in ORES, um, it's a little bit different in that there's a lot of work that is in the front end of the process and the pre-application phase. Projects that have gotten permits Thus far, most of them had transferred over from Article 10 that either gotten to their complete application stage when they transferred or they had already done a lot of the studies. So we're seeing 15 permits have been issued under ORES, which seems like, you know, really great progress. But five of those transferred over from Article 10 with complete application, and many of them transferred over with a lot of studies already done. Uh, So we're seeing with some of the newer projects, or projects that had to redo studies, that the pre-application phase is taking quite a bit of time, perhaps as long as two years for some of the bigger projects. Not exactly an accelerated process, um, as I think it may have been intended. Part of that was ORES, you know, had to really get staffed up as a new agency and get their feet under them. And even though the, the regulations are fairly detailed, there's still some discretion and and some judgment they've had to come in how to implement and exercise those regulations, particularly in the pre-application phase. So I expect that they're going to get a better, more streamlined process as they move forward. But it certainly has taken some time to get through the pre-application phase for some of these projects. As Ken said, once you get to complete application, you have a 12-month time frame, which is very helpful to get to final permit. But then there is also a a post-permit process that can take some time. And I think we've only seen one project really uh, start construction of those 15 projects that have final permits. Um, The question is, you know, is that a a factor of ORES um, being slow in issuing the compliance filing approvals? Or is it because of all the other factors we know are going on in the industry right now as far as supply chain issues and, and things like that? Well, what about the standardization aspect of ORES that uh, Akin mentioned? Has that actually been beneficial or are we still seeing, say, lawsuits that are raising issues that uh, may have been settled elsewhere and are really a moot point but are still looking to have their day in court? I think the standardization is has definitely been helpful. Um, what we had seen in Article 10 and we're seeing now in Article 7 for transmission line projects, is that um, without those kind of standardized conditions that you get in your certificate or your permit, you spend a lot of time rehashing that in each project. So even though you may have a certificate that you're starting out with saying, this is what was approved in the last project, we would like to implement the same conditions. 
the parties that come to the table are continually asking for new conditions to be put into the certificates or the permit under the old Article 10 process and the Article 7. So with the standardization, a lot of that is taken off the table. These are the standard conditions, and it's really just looking at what is site-specific if you're going to add any um, new conditions into the permit. In 2023, I was really struck uh, by how loud some voices around New York, particularly in Hudson Valley region, were in terms of opposing the siting of renewable energy projects in their areas. And they would cite the need to preserve farmland and certain state lawmakers were getting involved and urging uh, ORES to look for alternative sites uh, for projects, do these efforts represent a substantive threat uh, to the siting of renewable under the Office of Renewable Energy Siting, or are these the type of sort of nuisance uh, issues that uh, the office is really designed to sort of swat away and, and steamroll through? The process is designed to take into consideration issues that are important to the local communities. They certainly have a lot of different ways to participate in the process and raise issues if they think there are issues with the project. And that was true in Article 10, and and it's also true with the ORES process. Both Article 10 and ORES also gave the agencies, however, the right to override local laws that would be unreasonably burdensome for a project. Whether the agencies exercise that, that ability is a question. I think the siting board was hesitant to do it and became much more likely to exercise that um, as the process went on. ORES does exercise that ability, and we call it waive local law waivers. They will waive local laws, but they definitely are looking for applicants to show that they have done a, a significant amount of outreach and consultation with the local communities to try to resolve issues in the pre-application phase. To that end, in terms of how to communicate with the municipalities, The ORES regulations specifically, and this was also in Article 10, requires consultation with the municipalities, with the hosting municipalities, before an application even gets into a pre-application phase. So when the legislator wrote the the statute for ORES, it was very clear that you have to have a good relationship with your hosting communities. What happens is that since the process is a long process, once the application is put forward, it is still being examined by ORES, there is time for the municipalities to go back and enact laws that might not be that beneficial or helpful to the uh, siting processes. That's what we have been seeing. The other issue is that while the municipalities have their say, can ORES at the end of the day you know, issue and waive local laws? It is still a very high burden the local law has to be unreasonable. So the developer has to show why they cannot confirm with the uh, local law. So the starting point is when you're going in on a, into a siting place, in, into uh, siting your renewable energy project, you have to comply with the local laws. Municipalities still can come along and put a moratorium, that kind of a renewable project. So that was an issue in Article 10. Again, as what Brenda said, it took a long time for the siding board to actually take action and waive some local laws. Those issues, they're not going to go away because at the end of the day, we are putting these siding projects in hosting communities. One aspect also with ORES is that the community benefit part of it is part of the statute. While the statute doesn't specifically add exactly what the host 
benefit will be, you know, host communities benefit, there needs to be a package specifically designed for that hosting community. The legislator tried to make it work both for the municipalities and the developers. But on the other hand, as you know, when you go into the weeds, uh, it's not always that rosy. And after a quick break, we'll have more on the process of permitting large-scale renewable energy projects and the future of transmission siting in New York. Support for the Capital Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, this is the Capital Press Room, and we're continuing our conversation about the siting process of large-scale renewable energy projects by the State Office of Renewable Energy Siting, which may be adding the siting of transmission and energy storage projects to its docket. Our guests are Brenda Colella and Aiken Senlet, the co-chairs of the regulatory practice area at the law firm Barclay Damon. So the State Office of Renewable Energy Siting is really the baby of former Governor Andrew Cuomo. He's the one who spearheaded it through the budget process. And this type of office, as we've seen during its time in operation, can uh, rankle some local feelings and uh, the local responsiveness usually falls upon state lawmakers. So I'm curious whether you guys have seen efforts uh, in the last three or four years by state lawmakers to essentially uh, pass bills that would maybe undermine the uh, effectiveness of ORES, maybe either giving more local control or giving more time to the process. Have there been efforts in in Albany to sort of go around or, or weaken the office? I do think there have been some proposals along those lines, and there's also been lawsuits that have been filed uh, challenging the ORES regulations. The lawsuit has not been successful thus far, even on appeal, um, nor have any legislative proposals been passed along those lines. There is, I think, a proposal right now that um, the industry is in favor of, I believe, that would uh, try to have more community engagement and education um, in local communities about the ORES process, uh, which I do think would be helpful. Um, I think there's a lot of misinformation about this process and how it works. And I think some folks think that the ORES process is different from Article 10, and, and both processes were similar in that they allowed for this local law waiver. Are there other changes that you think should be made to the Office of Renewable Energy Siting and and the siting process more broadly for large-scale renewable energy projects in order to accelerate this process beyond what we've seen so far? If we could get more standardization even in the pre-application phase, I think that would be helpful. We're seeing surveys of certain species being requested that had not ever been requested before. Um, which are fairly long lead items because you have to do surveys at certain times of the year, perhaps two different times of the year, which require a full year of study. The unknowns and uncertainties when new things are are thrown into the process really affects these projects, being able to move forward on a timely basis. From outside, when you look at it, well, you have the 12-month clock, right? Once the application is complete, ORES will have to issue a permit. However, trying to get the completeness of that application takes a really long time. 
and that is behind the scene. And what we are seeing is um, it is quite different for each developer how long it's going to take. Is it going to take a year, two years? How many incomplete notices that the uh, developer will get? The idea was that the application is put forward or has 60 days before they issue either completeness or a um, notice of incompleteness. What we are seeing is it's not only one incomplete letter, it just comes one after other. And the uh, milepost, you know, the goalpost constantly moves, try to get to the application. We're almost seeing that um, the applicants will have to have a complete project design before they even get into this phase. In Article 10, while it was not a perfect design, you had the ability to negotiate what you need to put forward before the agency, and you can start the application process way earlier, and you can start negotiations. Here, unless you are all set in stone, it's very hard to get to that completeness process. And the other piece to keep in mind is siting is only one part of this whole general uh, you know, regulatory framework that the developers will have to work with or work under. So they're trying to keep a lot of balls up in the air as they're trying to move forward and make these uh, infrastructure projects turn into a reality. Well, pivoting away from the siting of renewable energy projects. We've heard, and it's been reported by Politico New York's Marie French, that the Hochul administration is interested in revamping the transmission uh, siting process uh, in large part to overcome local opposition to these projects, which have the uh, effect of dragging out uh, the process and in some cases, you know, even killing them. Uh, we asked Doreen Harris, the state's uh, de facto energy czar, about uh, ORES taking on transmission siting. And she argued that some principles from ORES are already being utilized for transmission siting, uh, but added as well that it's very different to site transmission uh, compared to power generation. Do you two think that uh, ORES and transmission can be a good fit? There are some aspects of the 94C process that um, you know would be beneficial for transmission. So the one that we've been talking about, having standardized uh, conditions in the permit or the certificate would be helpful. You know, as I mentioned with Article 7, similar to Article 10, there has been a lot of rehashing of issues. So for each project, um, if you don't litigate an issue, you spend months and months in settlement. If we have a standard set, then we can eliminate a lot of those months of negotiations or litigation. The unknowns are, you know, what the regulations if ORES takes over transmission, what those regulations would look like. I'm not so sure that the 94C regulations for generation really fit Article 7 in every aspect, so I think there would have to be a new set, and that would take some time to get put into place. But I could definitely see some benefits of the 94C process. And this is almost uh, going back to four years, five years ago, when Article 10 was being extremely clogged and the projects cannot move. Now we are seeing it on the Article 7 side. Just to keep things in perspective, Article 7 is a transmission siding statute of the uh, state, right? But it was, again, written back in the day for the transmission owners to either site new transmission lines, uh, most of the time overhead, or upgrading their transmission lines, the existing transmission lines that are owned by the incumbent utilities, owned by the sixth incumbent, six incumbent utilities in the state. And the other pillar of CLCPA, as uh, David, I'm sure you're following it as well, 
it's not only the onshore, uh, you know, the solar facilities as well as the um, wind farms. There's a whole component of offshore facilities that are being cited uh, in New York by. Uh, Article 7's jurisdiction also encompasses those transmission lines that are coming from the New York uh, border of the uh, of the ocean. However, Article 7 was not written to permit offshore cables or export cables, these big infrastructure projects. So we are seeing some very slow progress in order to cite these offshore projects, transmission lines. And the idea is if we can standardize uh, the rules and regulations, the developers will know what they're coming into. So it's not a two or three year permitting process for a transmission line. Well, finally, if the Office of Renewable Energy Siting does have its work expanded for it to include a transmission, how important is it that the office has money for additional staff and actually fills the, those jobs before it tries to take on this work? I think that would be crucial, and it's not just adding staff, but making sure they have staff that have experience with transmission lines and kind of understand the technical aspects behind it. I do think there was some talk of perhaps ORES moving back to Department of Public Service. I don't know if that's going forward, but there certainly are folks at the Department of Public Service that have that knowledge and experience, which would be helpful to retain. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with the co-chairs of the regulatory practice area at the law firm of Barclay Damon, and those guests have been Brenda Colella and Aiken Senlet. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us remotely. Thank you, David. And Aiken, thank you for visiting us in the studio. Glad to be here. Thank you. Support for Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.